0: This episode of Mayo Clinic Talks is brought to you by National Dairy Council. Since 1915, National Dairy Council is dedicated to research and education of dairy foods. As a nonprofit organization founded by dairy farmers, National Dairy Council is committed to providing science-based education on dairy's nutritional benefits for health and wellness. Learn more at usdairy.com backslash National Dairy Council.
1: This is Mayo Clinic talks a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers i'm your host Darrell Chutka a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester Minnesota. it's estimated that about 20% of women in the US have osteoporosis 80% of those with osteoporosis are women and many have no idea they have it, while a variety of bone fractures can result from osteoporosis hip fractures are probably the most serious complication. They represent a significant economic burden and often result in major changes to an individual's lifestyle. The good news is osteoporosis can be detected with relatively simple screening tests, and we now have a variety of treatment options available to manage the condition and reduce the risk of fracture. Today's topic is osteoporosis, and our guest is Dr. Jad Safar an endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss the pathophysiology of osteoporosis, who and when to screen, and the latest management options. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Judd, welcome and thank you for sharing your time with us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited uh, about talking about this important topic. This is an important topic and it's quite common. I'm gonna start by asking you kind of a general question of how bone density changes as we age? Because it it doesn't stay the same. It changes throughout our lifetime. So what are those changes? That's right.
0: So the bone is actually a very active organ, and it doesn't stay static throughout our entire life. We're all building bone in our youth, and we reach the peak bone mass in the third decade of life. So somewhere in our 20s and 30s, this is where the peak bone mass we accrue is achieved. And after that, there's a slow loss of bone density that happens with age. There are some sex differences between men and women, but in general, after the age of 50 is where we start noticing a clinically significant loss of bone mass. And this continues at a rate of about 0.5 to 1.5% of bone loss per year through aging as we continue to live.
1: Age 50 seems to correspond with that of menopause. Is that related?
0: That's absolutely related. So we always think about osteoporosis as being a postmenopausal disease, although, as you mentioned, this is an age-related disease. So this happens to all sexes, and it happens across the lifespan. But certainly menopause is a big factor. And this is where we notice there's a phase of accelerated bone loss that happens in women after they lose estrogen. So in those five to 10 years around the age of menopause, you start having patchy estrogen, and then eventually you lose estrogen completely. This is a phase of rapid bone loss that happens. In men, you don't have that. And uh, in men, usually the more clinically noticeable bone loss happens in the seventh decade of life so men in their 60s and 70s so about a 10 a decade difference between both sexes mm-hmm. is where you start noticing that in men as well but then the loss continues as we grow older as well
1: yeah. okay well let's talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of osteoporosis we know it's a reduced bone density so is it a problem of inadequate bone formation or excessive bone resorption or or both?
0: Right, we think it's both. There is a lot of things that are unknown in the molecular spectrum of how the osteoporosis happens with age, and we're learning about this all the time. But let's talk a little bit about bone formation and bone resorption. So the combination of both, this is what we call bone remodeling. You have the bone forming cells called osteoblasts, and the bone-resorbing cells, the osteoclasts. At any point in time throughout our lifespan, you have the osteoclasts that are chewing the bone, having a pit of bone that doesn't exist anymore, and then you have the osteoblast that will come in and fill in that pit with new bone, and eventually this bone becomes mineralized and become what we know mineralized bone is. This, the whole process is called bone remodeling. And this happens initially. Obviously, there is more accrual of bone when we're growing up. So you have more bone formation and a little bit of resorption happening. Between the peak bone mass and the age of 50, there is some kind of imbalance but not much but then as we age you have an imbalance happening and you end up losing bone the net of this remodeling is bone loss and we think that both of these cells are impacted with that so the osteoblasts which are the bone forming cells mostly come from the precursors are from the bone marrow stem cells with age the number of osteoblasts is reduced they are more susceptible to apoptosis, so more of them die, you make less and you kill more. We think, at least in part, that it has to do with the bone marrow stem cells moving towards making more adiposity, so bone marrow adiposity, bone marrow fat, rather than osteoblast. at least part of it, this shift Is responsible for less osteoblasts being formed. At the same time, you have the hematopoietic stem cells which are the precursors for the osteoclasts. This you have more differentiation of osteoclasts and you push more osteoclasts into the bone. So this is where that imbalance happens and this is why we think both are happening to some extent menopause is a different phase and may impact this differently so the ratio of how much bone formation you lose and how much resorption you gain in men and women may be different and has this has to do with the loss of estrogen in women
1: okay so who's at risk for developing osteoporosis everyone
0: we all age right so aging is a is a universal process we all age we all grow older and this is happening uniformly in all of us we're all losing bones so we're all at risk and this is why osteoporosis is a silent disease that you need to screen for. Nonetheless, there are some higher risk groups where we we should focus on. So the highest risk of developing osteoporosis are obviously in older patients, but also someone who has early menopause. We talked about how menopause is a crucial time where you lose a lot of bones. So anyone who has either surgical or natural menopause before the age of 45, Some diseases increase the risk, and these are diseases that cause more bone turnover, hyperthyroidism, hypercortisolism, so Cushing's, rheumatoid arthritis, but also malabsorptive diseases, either um, malabsorptive disease or malabsorptive surgeries that are done for weight loss or other indications can reduce the calcium and vitamin D absorption and cause early osteoporosis or osteoporosis in general. And a big risk group is medications. And we always think of glucocorticoids, steroids, as being a major contributor to uh, osteoporosis. But there are two categories of medications that we easily miss and we need to keep in mind. Women on aromatase inhibitors postmenopausally for breast cancer treatment or prevention. And men on androgen deprivation therapy, typically for prostate cancer treatment, part of that treatment. So these are big medications that that we should not forget about.
1: Okay. So when should we begin screening?
0: Right. So the United States task force, so the USPS task force recommends screening starting at the age of 65 for all women. But what used to be the National Osteoporosis Foundation, which is now called the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation, recommends that universal screening for women after the age of 65, however, postmenopausal women, so women after the age of 50, if they have additional clinical risk factors, we should also screen them for osteoporosis. And these risk factors are exactly what we talked about, diseases that contribute to bone loss or accelerate bone loss, medications that contribute to that. But you also need not forget someone who already had a fracture. So any adult who had a fracture with moderate or low trauma, we should screen them with osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. And then in men, after the age of 70, it is recommended that they get screening for osteoporosis.
1: I've often thought that screening at age 65 seems a bit late. I mean, why wouldn't we want to know when someone's in their mid or early 50s? You know, and if they have osteopenia at that time, at least we could make some change 10, 15 years sooner than they would get their normal first screening test.
0: I agree. And uh, we have many interventions that we can do Mm -hmm. to prevent that bone loss from happening. And early intervention is key. So you can maintain the bone or even improve the bone density. And I agree with that. But the cost effectiveness turns out Mm -hmm. to be, this is how the 65 came about. But I think one thing we forget is that group were above 50, but they have a clinical risk factor. These are women and men we should not forget about to screen.
1: Right. So- How should we be screening? What's the best test?
0: The best test is a DEXA scan. DEXA scan can provide a lot of information about the strength of the bone. It has its caveats. It is not the best test we have to measure bone density, but it is the cheapest. So widely available, cheap, covered by Medicare and insurance providers. And this is why this should be our go-to is the DEXA scan. There are other screening modalities that may be less accurate, even though cheaper. So DEXA seems to be the sweet spot of... Cheap enough, but quite accurate in measuring uh, bone density. I want to bring up a couple of things here. When we screen with a DEXA scan, I always recommend that we obtain the hip and the spine. The general recommendation is for one hip to be done, although many institutions such as Mayo Clinic choose to do both hips, and that would be reasonable too. In some situations, you may want to obtain the wrist as well, so the distal radius, but this is not yet a universal recommendation for everyone uh,
1: for screening. Annette, I find it interesting that there are a fair number of patients who have significant osteopenia either in the hips or the spine, but the numbers may not always be similar.
0: That's absolutely correct. And this is why we always take the one that is lowest, so the lowest uh, score or the lowest bone density at any Mm. site to be indicative for the rest of the skeleton. There have been studies that looked at these discrepancies and the risk of fracture correlates with the lowest bone density at any site. The difference may be due age-related differences and the remodeling we talked about, but could also be due to other medications or other diseases that have contributed to bone loss. It also has to do with the weight bearing of the patient. Some sites may be more weight bearing than others. The spine is particularly very sensitive because there are a lot of changes that happen with age uh, around the joint, and these can disturb the dexa measurement. So the spine is very susceptible to a distortion and is not the most stable across population. The total hip seems to be the one that's most stable across population.
1: Yeah, these degenerative changes in the spine are often so significant to uh, the point where we may not even get spine reading because I suspect some of the degenerative changes will over inflate the bone density of the spine is that correct That's
0: absolutely correct. So remember that arthritis, when you have bone rubbing on bone, this is calcium, right? So Mm -hmm. calcium will catch more x-ray and then this will falsely elevate the bone density. You need to know that to trust the person reading your bone density, that they are able to pick these up. And you should always be suspicious when you see a, a normal bone density in the spine where you have something very low or moderately low at the other side that the spine may not be the reliable one. Yeah,
1: interpreting the bone mineral density is challenging. I know a lot of patients have problems with that. Can you explain how we should describe the results to a patient with the T-score and the Z-score? How do we explain that in words they would understand? Right. So
0: our biggest population, obviously, is postmenopausal women or postmenopausal women and older men. So this is where you apply the T-score. So Z-score is reserved for premenopausal women or men below the age of 50. But anything beyond the age of 50 and postmenopause, you should use the T-score. And the way I explain the T-score to the patients is as follows. I tell them, we're comparing your bone density to the bone density of a 25-year-old woman. And the reason is that we don't know what your bone density was when you were 25, but this is the peak in the general population. You reach the best bone in your at the in your mid-20s. And what I would like to know is what do you compare today to when you were in your mid-20s? And since I don't have your own bone density, we compare it to an average 25-year-old woman. And this is where we come up with that score. So let's say, a score of negative 2.5, which is where we define osteoporosis, I tell them you are 2.5, two and a half points below an average 25-year-old woman.
1: On occasion, when we do screening, the initial screening test often shows mild to moderate osteopenia. So when should we get our next bone screening test, bone mineral density screening? So there are no
0: universal recommendations on that, and that's because we don't have enough studies to tell us the value of repeating bone density and what's the time frame of repeating it. But the way I think about it is that bone density is a continuum. So I don't look at bone density as normal versus osteopenia versus osteoporosis. I look at where that T-score is at. Mm -hmm. And this is what helps me determine the next bone density. So if we have a totally normal bone density and the patient has low risk, they don't have other clinical risk factors for osteoporosis, I may wait five or more years before I repeat another bone density. If they have a T-score that is closer to the minus 2.5. So let's say a T-score of minus 2.4, which may be within the margin of error of the machine, it's very close to that minus 2.5. I usually tell them the sooner the better. And the the soonest that insurance companies will pay for is one and a half to two years, so 18 to 24 months. So I usually tell them we repeat it at two years because you're very close to that threshold versus someone who has a T-score of minus one and let's say no other risk factors, no additional high-risk medications, I may wait for three or four years before I repeat it. So low bone density in the osteopenia range, you can go between two and five years before you repeat, depending on where they are in that spectrum and what's their clinical risk. Someone with a normal bone density, I probably would wait beyond five
1: years. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about treatment. What should we be recommending to the woman who has a mild to moderate osteopenia t-score one or minus one to minus 1.5 or less
0: Right. So I want to flip that question a little bit. The way I think about osteoporosis is a little different. And I would like to share this with our audience and hope that to change their, their perception of how we think about this. So I don't look at a patient and say you have a normal bone density, you have osteopenia, or you have osteoporosis. I look at a patient and tell them you have a low risk of having a future fracture, a moderate risk of having a future fracture, or a high risk. And what we talk about future fracture, we're talking about the next five to 10 years. So your risk of having a fracture over the next five to 10 years is what? Low, moderate, or high. And based on that, I determine what my management plan is going to be. Because at the end of the day, why are we doing all this? We're doing all this because our goal is to prevent a fracture, to maintain a healthy skeleton, fracture-free skeleton as we grow older. Because this translates into less mortality, but also less morbidity, more independence. In addition to being an endocrinologist, I'm also a geriatrician, and I've seen older women lose independence because of a hip fracture. Now they're dependent on a cane or a walker, and this is something they cherish a lot, being independent, being mobile. So our goal is reduce the risk of fracture. So I need to risk stratify them to determine how to achieve that goal. Now, how do you risk stratify? Obviously, the bone density is one tool, but I don't use it in silos. So I use the bone density along with my clinical evaluation. One way to measure the risk of fracture is to calculate a FRAX score. So I hope everybody that's listening to us is familiar with the FRAX, which is an online calculator that's validated in the U.S. population for different ethnicities. You can calculate the risk, including the input that you get from the bone density of the femoral neck. So I use both. I use the clinical evaluation and the bone density to determine where they fall. Low risk is generally someone with a normal bone density, someone with no other clinical risk factors. Moderate risk, if you have T score in that osteopenia range, this automatically puts you in moderate risk at least. But with the fracs, you add more based on your clinical evaluation, you may move them up to a high risk category, even though the bone density indicated only osteopenia. And that's because, let's say, a woman, a breast cancer survivor, Who is on an aromatase inhibitor and the plan is to continue it for the next 10 years and the T score is only minus 2.3 so we're very close so this this is a high risk person so that changes the way I look at that and then someone who has a T score of minus 2.5 or lower than you're automatically in the high risk category as I said we look at bone density and T score as a continuum so The lower the T-score, the higher the risk of fracture, and the more clinical risk factors you have, the higher the risk of fracture. So even within the high-risk category, some people look at high versus very high risk, although we don't really know how to define very high, so we're just going to lump them in our discussion today as high-risk category. Moving on to your question, I know this is a long-winded answer, but I really wanted to to give that concept because this this is how I look at managing uh, risk of fracture. So someone with low risk, I give them the general recommendation for age-appropriate calcium and vitamin D intake, weight-bearing exercise, because it's very important to exercise the muscles because these are supporting the spine. Someone with moderate risk, this is where I'm very particular about how much calcium and how much vitamin D. So they no longer get the general recommendation. Someone with moderate risk, above the age of 50, women should be getting 1,200 milligrams of calcium. Men should be getting 1,000 milligrams of calcium every day. This includes diet diet. And whatever they cannot get in the diet in terms of calcium, they can complete it with supplements to reach that target of calcium intake. Vitamin D, somewhere between 800 and 1,000 international units, which translates to 20 to 25 mcg of cholecalciferol once a day. We prefer using daily cholecalciferol cal- or vitamin D3 rather than big boluses. We don't use that weekly big doses or monthly doses anymore because they create peaks and valleys which we don't like. So a daily 20 to 25 mcg of cholecalciferol mm-hmm. is my recommendation. And in the moderate risk category, I also focus more on exercise, and I no longer. just give them weight-bearing general exercises, but we focus on exercises that will make sure that the posture is appropriate so that the spine is not having a lot of strain because this happens as we grow older. So we need to exercise those extensor muscles of the back. I also want to make sure their balance is appropriate, and I give them recommendations for balance exercises and fall prevention exercises. At Mayo Clinic, we have something called the Healthy Living Program, and we have a physical therapist that specializes in uh, people with low bone density, and they meet with them to provide them with personalized recommendation about these exercises, so what are good exercises to maintain healthy skeleton. Our audience may not have the access to this particular program, but I invite them to look for physical therapists or programs in their area that focus and have trained in osteoporosis. One way to do that is again, the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation has a program called Bone Fit, Bone Fit USA. You can go online, look up your zip code and see who is certified bone fit in your area. And you know then that this is a trustworthy therapist I can tell send my patients to them to get recommendations for exercises for low bone density and osteoporosis. Yes.
1: You mentioned uh, vitamin D recommendations and I always look to see where the patient is getting their vitamin D from. In many cases they're taking a vitamin D supplement and surprisingly they can get doses of up to 10,000 international units in one capsule over the counter. But they're also getting it in their calcium supplement and they may be taking a multivitamin. So yeah, I find many patients that are really getting too much vitamin D so you may have to scale them back a little bit. So what else do we have other than calcium and vitamin D? What are the other pharmacologic agents?
0: Right. So this is moving to the high-risk category, and this is where we introduce pharmacologic therapy. So in the high-risk category, that's my difference from moderate risk. Calcium recommendations stay the same. Vitamin D recommendations stay the same. And exercise, I focus more on fall prevention and balance. But then in terms of pharmacotherapy, we go back to our discussion about the pathophysiology of osteoporosis. And I took my time in describing it because this is how we look at these medications. So we have two sets of medications, medications that impact the bone resorption. So you're resorbing less bone, you're losing less bone, and then bone formation takes care of the rest. And we have medications that stimulate bone formation. We call them anabolic agents or osteoanabolic agents. They stimulate bone formation. Let's focus on the first category, the antiresorptives, So those that suppress the resorption. We have bisphosphonates, which are considered first-line treatment. We have denosumab, or trade name Prolia. We can also use hormonal therapy. So estrogen in women and testosterone in men are considered antiresorptives as well. I reserve estrogen and testosterone to special situations. So this is not my first line of therapy. Early postmenopausal women... If they have menopausal uh, symptoms, I work with our colleagues in the women's health clinic to prescribe them estrogen as their anti-resorptive, as they will have benefit. But the benefit of estrogen beyond the age of 60, this uh, warrants further discussion. In older men, testosterone may be problematic, and we usually don't use that as our first line therapy. Bisphosphonates are our first line. We have oral bisphosphonates and parenteral bisphosphonates to use. The most common oral bisphosphonate is alendronate, and the most common parenteral is zoledronate. These medications will suppress resorption, will maintain bone density with slight improvement in bone density that will be noticed with therapy. We'll talk about duration of therapy a little bit later. Mm -hmm. And then the third antiresorptive is denosumab. This is a very potent antiresorptive. This is an injectable given as an injection once every six months. This also suppresses bone resorption very efficiently to the point where bone formation really is taking over and you see very decent increase in bone density. The other group of medications, I will mention them briefly because these are more specialized medications that are usually prescribed by endocrinologists, but osteoanabolics, so the bone-forming medications, you have PTH analogs. So teriparatide and abeloparatide, both are from the PTH-based therapy. So you're giving daily injections of a PTH-like molecule, that will stimulate bone formation. This therapy typically is used for one and a half to two years to boost bone formation and is followed with an antiresorptive to stabilize the bone uh, afterwards. And then the newer medication that's been on the market for the past three years is romosozumab. It's a monoclonal antibody against sclerostin which primarily will um, increase bone formation, but in fact, it actually has some antiresorptive benefit. It suppresses bone resorption at the same time, creating a bigger window of bone formation to happen. The osteoanabolics as a group, we reserve them to the very high risk category of patients given their high costs associated with that.
1: Talk a little bit about the duration of therapy, because we used to start patients on treatment indefinitely, and that's not the case anymore.
0: Right. The, the pendulum has changed, so has swung to word limiting therapy. And the reason behind that is the, we learned with time the long-term side effects of uh, the antiresortives, which are the first-line therapy for uh, high fracture risk. So with prolonged use of bisphosphonates, we learned there are two side effects that we are concerned about, atypical femoral fractures and medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw. Both of these are associated with long-term use of this phosphonate, not to short-term use, and there are some higher risk groups where we can see these patients, these side effects in. But this is the reason why we try to limit therapy so we can get the best benefit of therapy without running into trouble with the long-term side effects. That being said, the duration of therapy has to do with the risk of fracture of the patient. So typically, you use oral bisphosphonates for five years before you re-evaluate the risk of fracture, and parenteral bisphosphonates for three years before you re-evaluate the risk of fracture. And reevaluating the risk after these three or five years is typically using a bone density scan again, or the DEXA. But also reviewing the clinical risk factors. Are they still on these high-risk medications? Are they still falling? Do they still have, did they fracture on therapy? So that's how you reevaluate the risk. And you determine if the risk is now low or moderate, now it's no longer high. You decide to put them on a bisphosphonate holiday and then re-evaluate two years within the holiday and determine whether you need to restart therapy. But if they remain high risk or very high risk, even at the end of these three to five years, the benefit may outweigh the risks of continuing therapy and you may decide to prolong therapy beyond that. One thing I wanted to mention is that duration of therapy is very problematic with denosumab. Denosumab is not a medication that is subject to holiday compared to what we do with the bisphosphonate. So it's not a medication holiday, it's a bisphosphonate holiday. We never should consider a denosumab holiday. And the reason being, people who took denosumab for many years and then they went on that so-called holiday, they stopped denosumab many are at high risk of having rapid bone loss within the first six months to 12 months of discontinuing denosumab and having spontaneous vertebral compression fractures within the first month of missing a dose of denosumab. So this is why denosumab either needs to continue or needs to be transitioned to something else. And the transition is a, a, a f- from denosumab is a hot topic, but I do we do not never recommend a holiday in someone taking uh, denosumab.
1: Well, Jad, you've given us some really good information on osteopenia and osteoporosis. Can you kind of summarize our discussion, maybe give two or three key points?
0: Right. So first point I would like to stress is screening for osteoporosis. We don't screen enough patients, even those who qualify for screening age 65 or older. Most of them do not get the appropriate screening. So screening with ADEXA is cheap, is available, is covered so we need to screen all women above sixty-five. We don't. We should not forget screening men above the age of seventy. This is a group that we forget about a lot, and we should not forget screening the higher-risk individuals at an earlier age, whether they have clinical risk factors or they fractured already. Even before the age of sixty-five to seventy, they should be screened with the DEXA. Second thing is the risk stratification. So DEXA is not a complete risk stratifier for the patient. So we need to include FRAX or other clinical tools to determine whether the patient has moderate or high risk of fracture. So I see a T-score of minus two and forget about it. That's not appropriate. We really need to engage more the clinical aspect to determine where they fall. And that will determine what's the next step. And when do I repeat the DEXA again in the future? And then finally, I want to stress something that we talked about, but it's never included enough in that, what I call the osteoporosis prescription. The osteoporosis prescription is not only a medication, but really should focus on physical therapy and fall prevention because I can give them all the medication that's available to us and they keep falling, they're going to break. So fall prevention, physical therapy, and appropriate physical therapist that has been trained in osteoporosis
1: prevention and treatment is key. We've been discussing the evaluation and management of osteoporosis with Dr. Jod Zafer, an endocrinologist from the Mayo Clinic. Jod, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. It was uh, some great information. Thank you for having me. You can now listen to over several hundred different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. I wish you good health. We're honored to have you as a listener and hope you tune in again next week.